Welcome to another episode of Payment Pros, a Trout and Pepper podcast focusing on the highly regulated and ever-evolving payment processing industry. This podcast features insights from members of our fintech and payments practice, as well as guest commentary from business leaders and regulatory experts in the payments industry. My name is Keith Barnett, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, let me remind you to visit and subscribe to our blogs, consumerfinancialservicelawmonitor.com and troutmanpepperfinancialservices.com. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts on troutman.com slash podcast. We have episodes that focus on trends that drive enforcement activity, digital assets, consumer financial services, and more. Make sure to subscribe to hear the latest episodes. Today, I am joined by my co-hosts, Carlin McCrory and Josh McBean, for the final part of our two-part series that takes a look back on what we've seen in the payments landscape in 2023 and also what we expect in 2024. As a reminder, if you haven't already, make sure to listen to part one of our series that discussed the CFPB's oversight of big tech and the war on fees. Today's episode will focus on subscriptions, FedNow, the Money Transmission Modernization Act, and NACHA. So Carlin and Josh, let's just jump right into today's topics. Thanks so much, Keith. So the first theme that Josh and I are going to cover today are canceling subscriptions. And on January 19th of this past year, in its circular, the CFPB said that negative option subscription services might constitute unfair or deceptive practices under the Consumer Financial Protection Act when a seller does one of three things. The first of those three things are misrepresenting or failing to clearly disclose the material terms of the program. The second is failing to obtain consumers' informed consent. And the third is misleading consumers who want to cancel or creating unreasonable barriers to cancellation or failing to honor cancellation requests. A negative option subscription service generally refers to a situation where a seller may interpret a consumer's silence failure to take an affirmative action to reject the service, or failure to cancel an agreement as acceptance of the subscription. You can think about this as any of those TV subscription services that companies offer falls within a negative option subscription most of the times. The CFPB stated that its impetus for targeting these negative option subscriptions is in response to consumer complaints and it's part of a bigger initiative by the Bureau and the FTC to combat what they call dark patterns or website design features allegedly used to trick or trap consumers. And I think the ultimate thing to get out of this is if you offer a negative option subscription service, you have to be aware that there are both state and federal laws on the topic. And one thing of note, particularly here, is that it has to be easy for the consumer to cancel the subscription. And ideally, it should be just as easy for the consumer to cancel the subscription as it was for them to initially enter into the agreement. Josh, do you want to go ahead and talk about what the FTC had to say about this? Absolutely. Thank you, Carlin. And I'll just add, you know, I'm going to talk about this more here in a moment, that companies that rely on subscription programs to generate revenue 
should pay close attention to what the CVB has done and what you just mentioned in this space and also the FTC rulemaking because the final rule may impact their operations. So taking it a step further, the FTC last year in March issued a notice of proposed rulemaking to amend its negative option rule because the FTC actually has a negative option rule on the books now. What the FTC describes as a negative option generally falls into four categories. First, a pre-notification plan. Second, continuity plans. Third, automatic renewals. And fourth, free trials. Now, pre-notification plans for the sale of goods are the only type of negative option covered by the FTC's current rule. And they generally describe a situation where a seller may interpret a consumer's silence or failure to take an affirmative action as an acceptance of goods. For example, a book of the month club. The FTC's proposed rule would amend the current negative option rule in multiple ways. It would expand the scope of the current rule because the proposed rule would apply to all forms of negative option marketing, including pre-notification plans, which are currently covered and they would still be covered, but it would expand to the other three types, so continuity plans, automatic renewals, and free trial offers. Second, the proposed rule would require disclosures. So the proposed rule would require sellers to clearly and conspicuously disclose certain information outlined in the proposed rule prior to obtaining the consumer's billing information. It would also require sellers to obtain certain affirmative consents from consumers and refrain from including any information that interferes with or detracts from the consumer's ability to provide informed consent and sellers would have to maintain a record of the consumer's consent. Finally, the proposed rule, and Carla mentioned this, and the CFB has taken issue with this as well, the FTC's proposed rule attempts to make cancellations easier, and it does this in multiple ways. The FTC's proposed rule requires sellers to provide a cancellation option through the same medium used to enroll the consumer, you know, whether that be through the internet, telephone, mail, or in person. Also under the FTC's proposed rule, before making pitches for additional offers or modifications to save or prevent cancellations, sort of, you know, making a sales pitch when someone has to cancel to prevent that, under the proposed rule, the seller must first ask consumers whether they would like to hear those saves or pitches for additional offers. If the consumer declines, the seller must immediately proceed to cancel the service. And finally, to make cancellations easier, the proposed rule requires sellers to provide an annual reminder to consumers enrolled in negative option plans involving anything other than physical goods. Such reminders must identify the product or service, the frequency and amount of charges, and the means to cancel. Under the proposed rule, the reminder requirement does not apply to subscription services for physical goods since, according to the FTC, each physical delivery serves as a reminder of the contract. So this proposed rule was published by the FTC in March of 2023. And in June of 2023, the FTC concluded its 60-day public comment period. In response to the notice of proposed rulemaking, several commenters requested an informal hearing on the proposed rule. That informal hearing will be conducted virtually on January 16th, 2024. So this is an ongoing issue that we're still tracking. And, you know, as Carlin mentioned, and I mentioned it 
before we started talking about the proposed rule, companies that you know have subscription services should really pay attention to what the CFPB and the FTC do in 2024, and we expect more activity in this space. Can I add something to that? Just a little bit more color from the litigation and enforcement perspective. Over the past several years, the FTC has filed several enforcement actions against payment processors and their merchants that use the negative option features. And they have sued under the telemarketing sales rule, ROSCA, and Section 5 of the FTC Act. And so payment processors, money transmitters, and banks, in the case of the CFPB, must be aware of merchants who use these negative option features. And from the payments perspective, if you're a bank payment processor, money transmitter, if you receive a higher percentage of chargebacks or unauthorized returns, the regulators will not only investigate your merchant if it becomes exceedingly high, especially if your merchant targets more of the lower income or people who are more likely to take out subprime loans. But the regulators may also add the payment processor or the bank, in the case of the CFPB, to that enforcement action for not stopping the payments from being affected. The CFPB and the FTC have both alleged in these lawsuits that unauthorized returns that are higher than the NACHA threshold are warning signs or flags. So be careful of that. It is a choke point type of argument that the regulators have been making over the past several years, and I believe they will continue to make it into 2024. And Keith, wasn't there some movement as well on sole proprietorships being treated as consumers under some of the litigation? Yeah, that's right. Also in the litigation, something else to look out for 2024 is, and this has been the FTC, so not as much the CFPB, but if there is a bigger company that is in a business-to-business contract with a small mom-and-pop shop, and the FTC believes that that bigger company is taking advantage of the smaller mom-and-pop shop with respect to payments, anything, that smaller mom-and-pop shop is going to be treated as a consumer for the purpose of Section 5 of the FTC Act. So that's definitely something to also look out for. That's great, Keith and Carlin. I think now I'm going to kick it over to Carlin to speak about FedNow, which was a big development in 2023. Yeah, thanks, Josh. As he said, FedNow was a huge development in 2023 and very welcome development. We've already released two separate podcasts on FedNow, so please listen to those if you'd like further detail. But broadly speaking, FedNow is a service for instant payments built by the Federal Reserve, and it allows financial institutions to offer instant payment transfers for their customers. FedNow also allows financial institutions to improve their customers' experience by granting them instant access to transfers of money without having to wait. But as you can imagine, with instant transfers or instant anything, this poses another avenue that fraudsters can pursue, and financial institutions have to be aware at least of the unique risks posed by a service like FedNow. Generally, it's our understanding that adoption of FedNow has been great, but maybe just a little bit slower than expected, possibly, because some institutions kind of want to see how this plays out and see how it works with other 
institutions who have adopted the service. But our understanding overall is that it's going really well, and we expect a host of financial institutions to adopt the service this year. Keith, you want to talk a little bit about the Money Transmission Modernization Act? Sure. Thanks, Carlin. By way of background, the Conference of State Banking Supervisors issued a model rule several years ago concerning money transmission. The CSPS had hoped that all of the states would adopt this model rule on money transmission in its entirety. That has not happened. But for our clients, the most significant parts of the MTMA are the agent of the payee exemption, the agent of the bank exemption, and the express inclusion of payroll processors within the definition of money transmission. That had never happened before. So with respect to the year in review, in 2023, the states of Georgia, Iowa, Maryland, Minnesota, Nevada, North Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia adopted the MTMA pretty much as written by CSBS. And most significantly to our clients, these states have included agent of the payee, agent of the bank, and included payroll processing within the definition of money transmission. There has not been precise uniformity as the CSBS had hoped, especially on bond requirements, like whatever the bond is, the minimum and the maximum amounts, net worth requirements for actually being a money transmitter and getting a license, and also whether or not financial statements will be required and whether or not they would be audited or unaudited and how far back they would go. Interestingly, Iowa placed a moratorium on the enforcement of the part of the law that affects payroll. And that moratorium will end in July of this year, 2024. And do not be surprised if Iowa decides that it will not include payroll within its final definition of money transmission after their state lawmakers meet this year. Also important to recognize and note that Nevada had town hall meetings to discuss MTMA, but no substantive changes were made that affect any of our clients or any of our listeners. The other thing that I want to bring up is that Alaska, New Hampshire, Hawaii, and South Dakota all passed significant portions of the MTMA, like agent of the payee and agent of the bank, but these states did not include payroll within their definition of money transmission. I do know that New Hampshire has proposed to include payroll, but it does not look like that will pass in 2024. But in any event, we will keep you posted throughout the year on MTMA as more states look to adopt bits and pieces of it. We expect to see a lot of action this year, but then the question is whether or not there ever will be uniformity. And I just don't see that based upon the way things have been going so far. And then next we have a NACHA update. And shameless self-promotion here, we did a podcast with Jordan Bennett, who is the Senior Director of Network Risk Management of NACHA. During that podcast, Jordan was extremely informative, and I recommend that all of you listen to that podcast if you have not already done so, and listen again if you've already listened to it, as we might get closer and closer to the proposals becoming actual NACHA rules. During that podcast, we did discuss NACHA's release of 
they entitled a new risk management framework for the era of credit push fraud. And this was, and these are my words, not Jordan's, not Notch's, but this is Notch's response on dealing with the peer-to-peer fraud payments that have been increasing year over year. And the objectives of the framework were to increase awareness of fraud schemes that utilize credit push payments. Secondly, they want to reduce the incidence of successful fraud attempts. And third, they want to improve the recovery of funds after frauds have occurred. Because when you had a case of what I will call friendly fraud, where an unwitting consumer provides their credentials to a fraudster under Reg E, it is difficult, if not impossible, for the consumer to receive their money back from the bank. They are just out of luck on that for the most part. As a part of implementing the objectives, NACHA requested comment on seven proposals related to ACH credit risk management. And these seven proposals were first, expanding commercially reasonable fraud detection. Secondly, RDFI monitoring and received credits. Third, the expanded use of return reason code R17. Fourth, expanded use of reversals for fraud recovery. Fifth, additional exemption from funds availability requirement. Sixth, a standard company entry descriptions. And seventh, standard use of individual name field. Now, I'm not going to go into any details on these because they are already in our prior podcast that you should listen to. And also we have written about it as well. So there are many avenues through which you can find out more information about this. And then the last thing that I do want to discuss about that particular NACHA update is that NACHA did request comment on two proposals related to ACH debt risk management. And the comments were due, I believe, last summer. So it's too late to get in a comment, but just wanted to remind you of that. And those comments related to the timing of a written statement of unauthorized debit and the other comment related to whether the RDFI must properly return an unauthorized debit. And then lastly, NACHA requested information on four additional topics. These four topics were, should the NACHA rules implement a new return threshold for ACH credit returns? Second, should the NACHA rules identify and define third-party receivers? as a type of participant in the ACH network and apply rules accordingly. Third, should the NACHA rules require that when an RDFI provides early funds availability, it must employ a risk-based approach in determining eligibility. And fourth, whether a new notification of change would be useful to identify when there's a mismatch between the SEC code and the account type. So lots there to unravel with NACHA. We expect a lot more from NACHA this year with respect to proposed rulemaking and also bulletins and things of that nature. We should be hearing a lot more from NACHA in April of this year of 2024. So stay tuned to that because we'll try to have Jordan or someone else back on from NACHA and we will definitely talk about these things. And Josh, do you have anything to say about EWA? Yes. Thanks, Keith. It was a highly active space last year at the state level. Earn Wage Access, or EWA, saw multiple state legislatures propose legislation that would regulate this EWA products in one way or another. And 
some legislation actually passed in a few states. We also saw state legislatures issue proposed regulations and interpretive opinions on EWA. We recorded a full podcast episode that covers the state-level EWA topics and provides an overview of what has happened with EWA products at the federal level over the past couple years. So we would strongly encourage you, if you want to learn more about the current state of play in the EWA space, to go listen to that episode. In 2024 already, we have seen multiple states issue proposed EWA legislation. Thus, we anticipate that the EWA will be an active space in 2024 and beyond. Thanks, Josh. And also, just to piggyback off of that with respect to EWA, you have some EWA fintech providers. And EWA kind of delves in to some of the things that Carlin talked about in our last episode with respect to larger participants. I mean, because theoretically, if you have EWA providers who have a sufficient client base, right? What is it? Five million transactions. So even if they are not touching the money, they're just providing the technology to facilitate EWA-related transactions, that could unwittingly put some EWA providers within that larger participants group if the law proposed by the CFPB stays the same. So that's something else to look out for in 2024 and in later years. All right. Well, Carlin and Josh, thank you for joining me today. And thank you to our audience for listening to today's episode. And do not forget to visit our blogs, consumerfinancialservicesLawMonitor.com and TroutmanPepperFinancialServices.com and subscribe so you can get the latest updates. Please make sure to also subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whatever platform you use. And we look forward to the next time. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.